0: Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another episode of Cryptique. I'm joined, as always, by a man who is adopting the Slender Man diet. Ryan, what's up? I,
1: yeah, I would try that. I'm actually kind of into weird diets. I always like that that idea that if you do this or that, it'll kind of change things for you. Probably the most extreme one I did was I fasted for seven days.
0: Holy shit. How much weight did you
1: lose? Not very much. Huh. Not as much as you would think. You lose... I actually did monitor my weight during it. Uh, I lost, like, a couple pounds a day, basically, for the first couple days, and then it kind of stopped. Yeah. Probably, like, water weight or whatever.
0: I feel like when you're working out... Like, I've done all kinds of different workouts. I feel like you just have to constantly switch. You know, like... Mm free weights to yoga to jogging to kettlebell and you just have to keep like confusing your body but anyway that's neither here nor there tell them what they need to know
1: if you like the show if you don't like the show if you have somebody you want to inflict us on please share us it's the best way <laughs> show like this to get around and grow uh, you can tell us how much you like or don't like us at at gmail.com. You can find us on social media, of course. Uh, TikTok at cryptique underscore podcast. YouTube, same thing without the underscore. And as always, you can help us out by helping out Parabox. This morning, I was going to get a cup of coffee, and it's not a Parabox shirt, but I, it's i don't know for some reason it's making me think of it now this guy had a shirt on you know that picture that's become kind of a meme of bernie sitting there with his mittens yeah bernie sanders yeah there's a guy with like this really cartoony looking version of bernie on his shirt and he had like two silenced pistols nice (laughs) and i just told the guy i was like i i don't understand the context but i love it so much (laughs) he just started laughing he's like i don't get it either my friend gave it to me but it's awesome
0: But more importantly, check out crypticpodcaststore.com, and at this point, they still haven't fixed the link, so you'll have to type it into the uh, address bar, is that what you call it, where you type in the Mm -hmm. actual, okay, yeah, so, so you gotta do that, but anyway, we need to get into this.
1: Ryan, what the fuck is a tulpa? A tulpa is a concept in theosophy, mysticism, and the paranormal of an object or being that is created through spiritual or mental powers. Modern practitioners who call themselves tulpamancers use the term to refer to a type of willed imaginary friend which practitioners consider to be sentient and relatively independent. And we've mentioned, or at least I've mentioned tulpas and thought forms a lot. A lot, Kind of the the idea that, yeah, you can think about something so hard. and I I feel like that's where a lot of the encounters come from. Like, you're Mm -hmm. thinking about your wife coming home. And you think about it so much that, like, you hear her come in. Like, there are stories of people saying that. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, they actually come in.
0: Yeah, and then you got to find a
1: spot to hide so you don't have to interact. (laughs) I'm just teasing, of course. All right, so for the theosophy and thought forms... 20th century theosophists adapted the Vajrayana, if that's the right way of pronouncing that. I feel like we should always have that disclaimer. Concept of the emanation body into the concepts of tulpa and thought forms. So the concept of emanation body. The theosophist Annie Besant in the 1905 book Thought Forms divides them into three classes. Forms in the shape of the person who creates them. Forms that resemble objects or people and may become ensouled by nature spirits, or by the dead, and forms that represent inherent qualities from the astral or mental planes, such as emotions. The term thought form is also used in Evan Wentz's 1927 translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The concept is also used in the Western practice of magic. Occultist William Walker Atkinson in his book The Human Aura described thought forms as simple, ethereal objects emanating from the auras surrounding people so emanation again generating from their thoughts and feelings he further elaborated in clairvoyance and occult powers how experienced practitioners of the occult can produce thought forms from their auras that serve as astral projections which may or may not look like the person who is projecting them or as illusions that can only be seen by those with awakened astral senses
0: so what do you think do you think that this is possible like, I mean, there's people that claim to have, you know, supernatural abilities to be able to speak with the dead and such. Could maybe someone with, you know, like a powerful aura or life force, you know, like a yogi or, or someone like that. Uh, do you believe that tulpas are real?
1: I do. Yeah. I actually do. I've, I've experienced some things that suggest that they're real, that somebody's intentions or thoughts can kind of emanate out and affect something else. Now, as far as, like, you know, creating a Tulpa BFF mm-hmm. to, like, watch Destination Fear with, I don't know. <laughs> but as far as these smaller effects, like we like I was just mentioning, you know, like hearing somebody get home, or I had a friend one time, I might have mentioned this on the show when we talked about this before, but I was just... Minding my own business at home, and I heard a friend of mine's voice say my name, Mm -hmm. like very clearly out loud. And for some reason, I just, I just decided to call her. And I was like, "Did you just say my name by any chance, like, or were you thinking it or whatever?" And she was like, "Yeah, actually, I was." Why? I was like, "I think I heard you somehow." She's like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah, I don't know either." All right, bye. (laughs) I just weird. It was just one of those things where I was like, okay, this might as well happen. (laughs) I'm not going to try to think too hard about it.
0: I definitely think that our mind is a lot more powerful than what people give it credit for. I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily believe that if you could use all your, you know, fire all your synapses at once or something like that, that you'd be able to fly like some people think. But yeah, I mean intentions are everything and it's not beyond the realm of extreme possibility that something like this could be true but let's talk about alexandra david neal spiritualist alexandra david neal stated that she had observed some of these mystical practices in 20th century tibet She describes tulpas as, quote, magic formations generated by a powerful concentration of thought. End quote. She believed that a tulpa could develop a mind of its own and said, quote, once the tulpa is endowed with enough vitality to be capable of playing the part of a real being, it tends to free itself from its maker's control. So that's kind of scary. If you, you know, if you're trying to create this, Tulpa or this being, whatever it is, that it could eventually just be like, nah, fuck you, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to sit in your house and I'm going to eat your bonbons.
1: (laughs) Yeah, then you have a rogue Kate Winslet from like Titanic era Tulpa roaming around your house.
0: (laughs) According to David Neal, this happens nearly mechanically, just as the child, when her body is completed and able to live apart, leaves its mother's womb. She said she had created such a tulpa in the image of a jolly Friar Tuck-like monk which later developed a life of its own and had to be destroyed. She raised the possibility that her experience was illusory. She says, quote, I may have created my own hallucination, end quote, though she said others could see the thought forms that she had created. So she was a
1: tulpamancer. Tell us about the tulpamancers. Influenced by depictions in television and cinema from the 1990s and 2000s, the term Tulpa started to be used to refer to a type of willed imaginary friend, kind of the way we referred to it before. Practitioners considered Tulpas to be sentient and autonomous, and online communities dedicated to Tulpas spawned on the 4chan and Reddit sites. These communities refer to talpa practitioners as talpamancers. These communities gained popularity when adult fans of My Little Pony started discussing tulpas of characters from the My Little Pony television series. Wow, and I thought my Kate Winslet one was maybe kind of rusty. Seems innocuous. the The fans attempted to use meditation and lucid dreaming techniques to create imaginary friends.
0: Well, let's talk real quick about Samuel Paul Vessier, Ph.D., An interdisciplinary anthropologist and cognitive scientist, Dr. Vessier, studies social dimensions of cognition, consciousness, and human well-being through a variety of projects, including placebo effects and hypnosis, the impact of the internet on human well-being and behavior, the mental health of millennials and Gen Z, gender and mental health, and the theoretical study of cultural evolution. Surveys by Vessier explored this community's demographic, social, and psychological profiles. These practitioners believe a Tulpa is a, quote, real or somewhat real person. The number of active participants in these online communities is in the low hundreds and few meetings in person have taken place. They belong to primarily urban, middle-class, Euro-American, adolescent, and young adult demographics and they cite loneliness and social anxiety. As an incentive to pick up the practice, which makes sense. If you don't have a friend, you want a friend, just make one. Uh, But it does make me think that maybe I have seen some of these tulpas because, you know, I've seen people in stores that just seem like they're not all there. Like they're just like maybe 80% of a person. Because I was waiting for people in front of me to move, and this woman kept grabbing a bottle off the shelf, walking it across the aisle to her cart, handing it to her husband, and her husband couldn't figure out how to put the bottles in there. These were two liter soda bottles, and I'm like, I I almost said, like, do you guys need help? Because they're not going to stand up. They're not going to stand up in the cart. No matter how hard you try, all you're doing is ruining my shopping experience. So maybe it was a Tulpa. Maybe, you know, it was just 80% person and semi-lucid.
1: Were, but, were you at Walmart? Yeah, I was. I would describe most of the shoppers at Walmart as semi-lucid. semi-lucid. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> 93% of respondents expressed that their involvement with the creation of Tulpas has, quote, made their condition better and led to new unusual sensory experiences. Some practitioners have sexual and romantic interactions with their tulpas, though the practice is controversial and and trending toward taboo. I don't know, man. If you're trying to will a person into creation so you can have romantic interactions with them, then, yeah, I think that should not be trending toward taboo, that should just be already there, destination taboo. One survey found that 8.5% support a metaphysical explanation of tulpas, 76.5% support a neurological or physiological, or make that psychological explanation, and 14% other explanations. But the report didn't get into that. Practitioners believe tulpas can communicate with their host in ways they sense do not originate from their own thoughts. So I guess that's basically just saying that this tulpa has a mind of its own. It's kind of a weird phrasing, but...
1: Yeah, that's how I take it, too. It is a kind of a weird way to put it, though.
0: Some practitioners report experiencing hallucinations of their tulpas. Practitioners that hallucinate report being able to see, hear, and touch their tulpas. Bessier's survey of 141 respondents found that the rates of autism, ADD, and ADHD is significantly higher among the surveyed tulpamancers than in the general population. And he goes on to speculate that people are more likely to want to make a topa because these groups have a higher level of loneliness. We'll talk about the Philip experiment after a quick break. Welcome back, grip Keepers. Ryan, tell us about the Philip experiment.
1: The Philip experiment was a 1972 parapsychology experiment conducted in Toronto, Ontario, to determine whether subjects can communicate with fictionalized ghosts through expectations of human will. The experiment was conducted by a Toronto Parapsychological Research Society led by mathematical geneticist Dr. A. R. George Owen and overseen by psychologist Dr. Joel Witten. You know that we will never use AI-generated voices because we will always mispronounce things and stumble over stuff, and I'll make myself laugh doing it. Absolutely. The test group consisted of Owen's wife, Iris Owen, former chairperson of Mensa in Canada, Margaret Sparrow, industrial designer, Andy H., his wife, Lauren, heating engineer, Al Peacock. It's an interesting name, Al Peacock. It's awesome. I guess I should have looked at this list of names before. <laughs> Accountant Bernice M., bookkeeper Dorothy O'Donnell, and sociology student Sydney K., and you can definitely tell the ones that did not want to be identified for being in this study after the fact. Exactly. Their goals, their goals were to create a fictional character through a purposeful methodology, and then attempt to communicate with it through seance. It's very specific again. Like, we went from a very broad uh, sort of mission statement for this to, like, Communication through seance I feel like it's oddly specific absolutely the character created and agreed upon was named Philip Aiselford nope that's definitely not Aiselford what is Aylesford? Ail- Ails- yeah Alesford sure the character created and agreed upon was named Philip Aiselford referred to as Philip during the test so why even give him the last name <laughs> his right. fictional history partially coincided with actual events and places but with multiple contradictions and errors. He was born in 1624 in England, had an early military career, and was knighted by the age of 16. That explains the uh, spelling of Aylesford. Yeah,
0: they're shooting for the stars, aren't they? Like, maybe Mm -hmm. you should just make somebody who, you know, is boring. It's like an air
1: conditioner (laughs) repairman or whatever, like a normal job.
0: Right, like they're like, no, we're going to bring into existence this guy from 1624 who was knighted and you know, fought with long swords and shields and battle and stuff. And then we're just
1: going to hope he's nice. Right. (laughs) He was involved in the English civil war and became personal friends with Charles II, working for him as a spy. Philip was unhappily married to a woman named Dorothea and later fell in love with a Romani girl who was accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake in despair. Philip committed suicide in 1654 at the age of 30. The group was seated around a table with initial seances yielding no contact, no communication, and no phenomenon. Owen changed test conditions by dimming lights and changing the environment to mimic that of a more traditional seance. Participants began feeling a presence, table vibrations, breezes, unexplained echoes, and rapping sounds, which matched responses to questions about Philip's life. And we should maybe clarify that when we're talking rapping, we mean like... Knocking
0: sense. <laughs> He's not uh, singing NWA. Not like,
1: not like that wiki wiki noise that Will Smith used to make in all his songs.
0: Right. Yeah. He appears as a knight and then just starts <laughs> busting out with fucking baby got back.
1: <laughs> oh man, I wasn't prepared for that. <clears throat> at one point, the table lifted on a single leg, and at other times, moved across the room without human contact. And maybe that's something we could do in an episode on uh, table tipping. Have you heard of that? No. It's it's basically seances with the purpose of doing this. Like just to lift everybody the Everybody kinda Yeah, everybody kinda puts their hand on the table and then the table's supposed to lift up on its own or like spin on a leg or whatever.
0: You should totally do seances at your bar. Like <laughs> yeah. like three AM, the bar closes fifty bucks to come in and be a part of the seance. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and if the cops stop by they're like, Aren't you supposed to be closed? they be like, No, we're doing a seance, come on, sit down. <laughs> Yeah, we're not serving alcohol. Although audio, video, and witness accounts document the paranormal phenomena, Philip never appeared to the participants. So what about criticisms? Well, I'm sure there's a lot. Uh,
0: the (laughs) (laughs) The experiment has been criticized for lacking solid controls and providing ambiguous results due to the unreliability of seances. Seances... Are not scientific. So if you try to push them into a scientific box, it's not going to work. So I don't even know why people would try. But uh, anyway, the repeated test, which created fictional characters named Lilith, which I'm pretty sure you could get a really bad person if you bring. Uh, Lilith into existence. And I don't mean that for any of our listeners or the friends or whatever, but Lilith was supposed to be Adam's first wife and she wanted to be on top. So she was, yeah, that way. And so she was basically banished. And then she came back to steal children out of cribs, which is where the term lullaby comes from. It means basically Lilith, bye do not come here
1: i was just gonna say wasn't lilith also uh niles wife from cheers and then fraser yeah but nobody cares about that um i know but i (laughs) wouldn't want to summon her either she's basically the same thing as the first one that's
0: true that's very true uh so they also had one named humphrey so there's that and They yielded similar results under similar circumstances and were deemed inconclusive. Overseeing psychologist Joel Witten, whom we referenced earlier, concluded that the effects were produced by participants as a subconscious defense mechanism, causing their behavior to regress to a childlike mentality. And that seems awful strange. I presume what he's saying is that, they don't want to be wrong or they don't want to seem stupid or seem silly to themselves. So subconsciously they're creating this, this being or this thought form and they're hallucinating to see it as a self-defense mechanism. I don't know. I mean, that seems strange to me, but
1: it seems like a stretch.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, we hear about all kinds of stuff though. Like, like, uh, where they talk about like group psychosis or basically group or shared psychosis where people all believe in something and it's totally fake. They're just feeding off each other.
1: Right. Or like a, or like a pressure to conform.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean like, Oh yeah, I see it too. Or I feel it too. Or whatever.
0: And, and we do see that in ghost hunting a lot. Like, Oh my gosh. It's 70 degrees in the house, but it's like 62 over here, man. And everybody's like, yeah, I'm getting cold too. Oh, yeah, the hair on my arms is standing up. I'll just, yeah. So I can I can see what he's getting at. I just think that it's a different situation when you're trying to, you know, bring a thought form into existence. But what do I know? Um, I'm not the overseeing psychologist, and I'm sure there's pressure on you know, mainstream psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, clergy, whatever, to kind of deny this. You know what I mean? Like if, if Dr. Joel Witten came back and said, yes, they definitely created a thought form. It was there. They definitely saw it, or even I saw it. Guess who's out of a job? Dr. Joel Witten, because people are going to you know, associate him with something that they presume to be fake and bullshit. And so there's a lot of pressure on him to be like, no, 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 it was all bullshit. In pop culture, the experiment loosely inspired The Apparition, released in 2012, and The Quiet Ones, released in 2014. And The Quiet Ones, I thought was a great movie, but I don't think I've seen The Apparition. Have you seen either one of those?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: All right. You have any closing statements on the Philip the Ghost experiment? What do you believe?
1: I, I feel like it was just. I feel like it's an odd setup. I feel like giving a weird. The history seems strange. Like the somewhat made up, somewhat factual history of the character seems. It just seems kind of strange to me. Like, why would you Because why that? wouldn't you? Yeah, as a reason why you wouldn't choose, like. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna summon Ray, mm-hmm. and Ray Ray works as like a bar back at some restaurant or whatever. You know, like just doing a regular job. You know, and at night he goes home to his wife Sam and whatever. Yeah, it's like why does it have to be a night from whatever time whose wife was burned at the stake and all this stuff? Right.
0: Yeah. Like, why do you need to create Megatron in the beginning? You know, just make it Bumblebee.
1: Right, and why do we need to be uh, using a séance? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, if it's if it's real, you shouldn't need a séance, right?
1: Hmm. Hmm.
0: Anyway, all right. Well, WTF is a Golem? <laughs> we'll find out after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Ryan, tell us about the Golem.
1: A Golem is an animated anthropomorphic being in Jewish folklore, which is entirely created from inanimate matter, usually clay or mud. The most famous Golem narrative involves Judah Lo Ben Bezalel, the late 16th century rabbi of Prague. According to Moment Magazine, the Golem is a highly mutable metaphor with seemingly limitless symbolism. It can be a victim or villain, man or woman, or sometimes both. Over the centuries, it has been used to connote war, community, isolation, hope, and despair. The word golem occurs once in the Bible in Psalm 139, verse 16, which uses the word that means my light form, raw material, connoting the unfinished human being before God's eyes. The Mishnah uses the term for an uncultivated person, Seven characteristics are in an uncultivated person, and seven in a learned one. In modern Hebrew, golem is used to mean dumb or helpless, and to describe an insect in its inactive, immature form between larva and adult. I think I know a couple golems then. Similarly, it is often used today as a metaphor for a mindless lung (laughs) or entity that serves a man under controlled conditions, but is hostile to him under other conditions. Golem passed into Yiddish as golem to mean someone who is lethargic or beneath a stupor. So I guess beneath a stupor meaning stunned in some way?
0: Yeah. Is that how you would take that? Yeah, or or maybe mentally deficient a little bit.
1: We should probably point out that there were a lot of quotes in that passage, so not everything is like our wording for it. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about the history. The oldest stories of golems date to early judaism in the talmud adam was initially created as a golem when his dust was kneaded into a shapeless husk and that's a quote from talmud like adam all golems are created from mud by those close to divinity but no anthropogenic golem is fully human early on the main disability of the golem was its inability to speak now that would be useful on a lot of people. I wish I could just golemize somebody and they couldn't talk anymore. I'm sure people feel that way about me too, though. So uh, Sanhedrin describes Rava creating a man. He sent the man to Ravzira. Rob Zera spoke to him, but he did not answer. Rob Zera said, Quote, You were created by the sages. Return to your dust. End quote. During the Middle Ages, passages from the Sefer Yetzirah or Book of Formation, were studied to create and animate a golem, although little in the writings of Jewish mysticism supports this belief. It was believed that golems could be activated by an ecstatic experience induced by the ritualistic use of various letters of the Hebrew alphabet forming a Shem, or any one of the names of God wherein the Shem was written on a piece of paper and inserted in the mouth or in the forehead of the golem. A golem is inscribed with Hebrew words in some tales, for example some versions of Chelman, Prague, as well as in Polish tales and versions of the Brothers Grimm, such as the word emet, truth, in Hebrew, written on its forehead. The golem could then be deactivated by removing the aleph in emet, thus changing the inscription from truth to death, meaning dead, of course. The earliest known written account of how to create a golem can be found in Sode Reshaya by Eleazar ben Judah of Worms of the late 12th and early 13th century. Man, that's that's a rough one. How would you like to be Ryan of the Worms? <laughs> <laughs> Samuel of Spire in the 1100s was said to have created a golem. One source credits 11th century Solomon Gabbirul with creating a golem, possibly female. For household chores. Nice. In 1625, Joseph del Medigo wrote that, quote, many legends of this sort are current, particularly in Germany. So basically, before we jump into the Golem of Chelm, or Kelm, what is being done is these people are basically creating a, a human form out of mud or clay and then writing an inscription on their forehead. We're putting a letter, you know, a note in their mouth. And that's what brings them to life. So what about the Golem of Chelm? Just so the listeners know, there's an L with a line through it all funky. So this is a hard word. Give
1: us a break. I am not. I'm not going to lie. I thought there was something wrong with my screen when I saw that. I was like, I don't know what that line is. Right. uh, The oldest description of the creation of a Golem by a historical figure is included in a tradition connected to Rabbi Eliyahu of Kelm. A Polish Kabbalist, writing in about 1630-1650, to reported the creation of a golem by this rabbi as follows, And I have heard in a certain and explicit way from several respectable persons that one man living close to our time, whose name is R. Eliyahu, the master of the name, who made a creature out of matter and form, And it performed hard work for him for a long period. And the name of Emmett was hanging upon his neck until he finally removed it for a certain reason. The name from his neck and it turned to dust. That's the end of that particular quote. That's really strangely written. But essentially they're saying that this rabbi created a golem to basically do work for him, to be a servant, to be, you know, a laborer. And that it had a name tag on it. And then when he was done with it, he took that name tag off. <laughs> and the gong just fell apart into its component pieces.
0: Well, and keep in mind that this is a quote from 1630
1: to 1650. So it's yeah, difficult. And in Polish from that time. So it's yeah. being translated through time and languages. Yeah, A similar account was reported by a Christian author, Christoph Arnold, in 1674. Rabbi Jacob Emden elaborated on the story in a book published in 1748. As an aside, I'll mention here that I heard from my father's holy mouth regarding the golem created by his ancestor, R. Eliyahu Balshem Shem of blessed memory. When the Golem saw that the golem was growing larger and larger, he feared that the golem would destroy the universe. He then removed the holy name that was embedded on its forehead, thus causing him to disintegrate and return to dust. Nonetheless, while he was engaged in extracting the holy name from him, the golem injured him, scarring him on the face. According to the Polish Kabbalist, the legend was known to several persons, thus allowing us to speculate that the legend had indeed circulated for some time before it was committed to writing. And consequently, we may assume that its origins are to be traced to the generation immediately following the death of R. Eliyahu, if not earlier. The classic narrative, the golem of Prague,
0: the most famous golem narrative involves Judah Lo Ben Bezalel, the late 16th century rabbi of Prague, who reportedly created a golem out of clay from the banks of the Vltava River and brought it to life through rituals and Hebrew incantations to defend the Prague Ghetto from anti-Semitic attacks and pogroms. Okay, so the, a pogrom is basically what they're calling a or an anti-Semitic attack, or an attack on a group of people based on their ethnicity and so forth, and actually is considered a massacre. So that's what was driving this fear. Depending on the version of the legend, the Jews in Prague were to be either expelled or killed under the rule of Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor. The golem was called Joseph, and was known as Yosele, so, that's kind of cool. I guess if your name's Joseph and you want to go by Gosele, eh? he was said to be able to make himself invisible and summon spirits from the dead. Rabbi Lo deactivated the golem on Friday evenings by removing the Shem before the Sabbath began to let it rest on the Sabbath. One Friday evening, Rabbi Lo forgot to remove the Shem and feared that the golem would desecrate the Sabbath. A different story tells of a golem that fell in love and, when rejected, became the violent monster seen in most accounts. And I think that there is a Batman animated episode that has a golem that gets out of control. So that's interesting. Uh, some versions have the golem eventually going on a murderous rampage. The rabbi then managed to pull the Shem from his mouth and immobilize him in front of the synagogue, whereupon the golem fell in pieces. The golem's body was stored in the attic Geniza of the Old New Synagogue where it would be restored to life again if needed. Rabbi Lowe then forbade anyone except his successors from going into the attic. Rabbi Landau, a successor of Rabbi Lowe reportedly wanted to go up the steps to the attic when he was chief rabbi of Prague to verify the tradition. Rabbi Landau fasted and immersed himself in a mikveh, wrapped himself in phylacteries and a prayer shawl, and started ascending the steps. At the top of the steps he hesitated and then came immediately back down, trembling and frightened. He then reenacted Rabbi Lowe's original warning. According to legend, the body of Rabbi Lowe's golem still lies in the synagogue's attic. When the attic was renovated in 1883, no evidence of the golem was found. Some versions of the tale state that the golem was stolen from the Geniza and entombed in a graveyard in Prague's Ziskov district, where the Zizkov television tower now stands. A recent legend tells of a Nazi agent ascending to the synagogue attic and dying under suspicious circumstances thereafter. The attic is not open to the general public. Some Orthodox Jews believe that the Maharal did actually create a golem. The evidence for this belief has been analyzed from an Orthodox Jewish perspective by Schneier Z. Lehman. All these early accounts of the golem of Prague are in German by Jewish writers. They are suggested to have emerged as part of a Jewish folklore movement parallel with the contemporary German folklore movement. The origins of the story have been obscured by attempts to exaggerate its age and to pretend that it dates from the time of the Maharal. Rabbi Udall Rosenberg claimed that the book was based upon a manuscript that he found in the main library in Metz. Wonders of Maharal is generally recognized in academic circles to be a literary hoax. Gershom Sholem observed that the manuscript, quote, contains not ancient
1: legends, but modern fiction. End quote. What about the Golem of Vilna? A similar tradition relates to the Vilna Gaon, or the saintly genius from Vilnius. That sounds like an album name or something for a really hipstery band. Rabbi Chaim Volten reported ten different versions of a certain passage in the Sefer Yetzirah and asked the Gaon to determine the correct text. The Gaon immediately identified one version as the accurate rendition of the passage. The amazed student then commented to his teacher that, with such clarity, he should easily be able to create a live human. The gown affirmed Rabbi Kaim's assertion and said that he once began to create a person when he was a child, under the age of 13. But during the process, he received a sign from heaven ordering him to desist because of his tender age. Interesting. So God was like, the ain't ready for this.
0: <laughs> I feel like trying to create life out of nothing is a task for God and should not be pursued by mere mortals. All right, we're going to jump to the clay boy variation because I love the ending. A Yiddish and Slavic folk tale is the clay boy, which combines elements of the golem and the gingerbread man. (laughs) Can't catch him. In which a lonely (laughs) couple makes a child out of clay with disastrous or comical consequences probably not one and the same. In one Mm -hmm. common Russian version, an older couple whose children have left home make a boy out of clay and dry him by their hearth. The clay boy comes to life. At first, the couple is delighted and treats him like a real child. But the clay boy does not stop growing and eats all their food, then all their livestock, and then the clay boy eats his parents. Then the clay boy rampages through the village until he is smashed by a quick thinking goat so if you're going to be creating gingerbread golems make sure you have a smart goat around you do not want the fainting goats where the gingerbread's gonna laugh at gingerbread man's gonna laugh at him, and they just pass out But those are some of my favorite animals in the whole wide world because that is just amazing. If you haven't looked up fainting goats, your life is incomplete. Go to YouTube and look up fainting goats. It is the best thing ever. But anyway, we'll talk about the Slender Man after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. War Booty! Tell us about the Slender Man.
1: The Slender Man is a fictional supernatural character that originated as a creepypasta created by Something Awful forum user Eric Knudsen, also known as Victor Surge, in 2009. He is depicted as a thin, unnaturally tall humanoid with a featureless white head and face wearing a black suit. The stories of the Slender Man commonly feature his stalking, abducting, or traumatizing people, particularly children. The Slender Man has become a pop culture icon, although he is not confined to a single narrative, but appears in many disparate works of fiction, typically composed online. Fiction relating to The Slender Man encompasses many media, including literature, art, and video series such as Marble Hornets, 2009-2014, wherein he is known as The Operator. The character has appeared in the video game Slender, the eight pages from 2012, and its successor, Slender, the Arrival from 2013, as well as inspiring Enderman in Minecraft. Hmm. Yeah, you know. I actually didn't know. Yeah, I didn't know that he was the uh, inspiration for that, but I totally see it. I got hooked on Minecraft for a little while, you know, a couple years ago. Sorry. He. He has also appeared in the 2015 film adaptation of Marble Hornets where he was portrayed by Doug Jones and an eponymous 2018 film where he was portrayed by Javier Botet. Beginning in 2014, a moral panic occurred over the Slender Man after readers of his fiction were connected to several violent acts, particularly a near-fatal stabbing of a 12-year-old girl in Waukesha, Wisconsin. The stabbing inspired the documentary Beware the Slender Man, which was released in 2016.
0: And we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, let's talk about some of the history and origin, get into that a little bit deeper. So the writings of H.P. Lovecraft influenced the creation of the Slender Man. So, as we said, he was created in 2009 on a thread in Something Awful Internet Forum. The thread was a Photoshop contest in which users were challenged to create paranormal images. Foreign poster Eric Knudsen, under the pseudonym Victor Serge, contributed two black and white images of groups of children to which he added a tall, thin, spectral figure wearing a black suit. Although previous entities had consisted solely of photographs, Serge supplemented his submission with snatches of text, supposedly from witnesses, describing the abductions of the groups of children and giving the character the name, the Slender Man. The quote under the first photograph read, we didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. The quote under the second photograph read, One of two recovered photographs from the Sterling City Library blaze, notable for being taken on the day which 14 children banished and for what is referred to as the Slender Man. A fire at the library occurred one week later. These additions effectively transformed the photographs into a work of fiction. Subsequent posters expanded upon the character, adding their own visual or textual contributions. Knudsen was inspired to create the Slender Man primarily by Zach Parsons, That Insidious Beast, Stephen King's The Mist, Reports of Shadow People, Mothman, and The Mad Gasser of Mattoon. And we have an episode on that you should check out if you haven't already. Other inspirations for the character were the tall man from the 1979 film Phantasm, which we have a Phantasm beat on TikTok, H.P. Lovecraft, the surrealist work of William S. Burroughs, and the survival horror video game Silent Hill and Resident Evil. Knudsen's intention was, quote, "...to formulate something whose motivations can barely be comprehended and which caused unease and terror in the general population." Other pre-existing fictional or legendary creatures which are similar to the Slender Man include the Gentleman, black-suited, pale, bald demons from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode Hush, Men in Black, many accounts of them in uncanny appearance, with an unnatural walk, and quote oriental features. In The Question, a DC Comics superhero with a blank face whose secret identity is Victor Sage, a name similar to Knudsen's alias, Victor Surge? In her book, Folklore, Horror Stories, and the Slender Man, the Development of an Internet Mythology, Professor Shira Chess of the University of Georgia connected the Slender Man to ancient folklore about fairy. Like fairies, the Slender Man is otherworldly, With motives that are often difficult to grasp, like fairies, his appearance is vague and often shifts to reflect what the viewer wants or fears to see. And like fairies, the slender man lives in the woods and wild places and kidnaps children. I just had to say otherworldly like David Childress says it on Ancient Aliens repeatedly. It's always, Mm. could this be a natural formation or is it something otherworldly?
1: <laughs> All right, what about the early yeah, development? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right <laughs> oh, Now I'll never be able to unhear that
0: me. There's a good name for you in here Tell us about the early development of the Slenderman
1: The Slender Man soon went viral Spawning numerous works of fan art, cosplay, and online fiction Known as creepypasta, like we talked about before Divorced from its original creator The Slenderman became the subject of myriad stories By multiple authors within an overarching mythos Many aspects of the Slenderman mythos first appeared on the original Something Awful thread. One of the earliest editions was added by a forum user named Thoreau Up, who created a folklore story set in 16th century Germany involving a character called Der Grobman, which was implied to be an early reference to the Slenderman. The first video series involving the Slenderman evolved from a post on the Something Awful thread by user C. Gars, <laughs> which I like, C-E space GARS. It tells of a fictional film school friend named Alex Crayley, who had stumbled upon something troubling while shooting his first feature-length project, *Marble Hornets*. The video series, published in found footage style on YouTube, forms an alternate reality game describing the filmer's fictional experiences with the Slender Man. The ARG also incorporates a Twitter feed and an alternate YouTube channel created by a user named To the Arc. I'm guessing is what that's supposed to be. It's all one word, no spaces. Yeah. As of 2013, Marble Hornets had over 250,000 subscribers around the world and had received 55 million views. Other Slenderman-themed YouTube serials followed, including Everyman Hybrid and Tribe 12. Several independent films about the Slenderman have been released or are in development, including Entity and the Slenderman Released free online after a $10,000 Kickstarter campaign. In 2013, it was announced that Marble Hornets would become a feature film.
0: Alright, let's get into the description. Because the Slender Man's fictional mythology has evolved without an official canon for reference, his appearance, motives, habits, and abilities are not fixed, but change depending on the storyteller. He's described as very tall and thin, with unnaturally long, tentacle-like arms, or just tentacles, which he can extend to intimidate or capture prey. In most stories, his face is white and featureless, but occasionally his face appears differently to anyone who sees it. He appears to be wearing a dark suit and tie. The Slender Man is often associated with the forest and or abandoned locations, and he can teleport. That's a cool power. Proximity to the Slender Man is often said to trigger slender sickness, a rapid onset of paranoia, nightmares, and delusions accompanied by nosebleeds. Early stories featured him targeting children or young adults. Some featured the young adults driven insane or to act on his behalf while others did not, and others claim that investigating the Slender Man will draw his attention. Graphic violence and body horror are uncommon in the Slender Man mythos, with many narratives choosing to leave the fate of his victims obscure, which I like. Your girl, Shira Chess, notes that quote, it is important to note that few of the retellings identify exactly what kind of monster the Slender Man might be and what his specific intentions are. These points all remain mysteriously and usefully vague. And I just wanted to throw out there, this is how he was described in a couple different articles I looked at. But when I think of the Slender Man, I just think 10 foot tall, 150 pounds, suit, nice hat, no face, and also having the tentacles that come out of the back often described as tendrils. So in what I'm familiar with, he has that, you know, everything we described earlier, and then also has these four tendrils on his back. So that's my interpretation. That's what I've seen. But why do you think
1: it's so popular? Media scholar and folklorist Andrew Peck attributes the success of The Slender Man to its highly collaborative nature. Because the character and its motives are shrouded in mystery, users can easily adapt existing Slender Man tropes and imagery to create new stories. This ability for users to tap into the ideas of others while also supplying their own helped to inspire the collaborative culture that arose surrounding The Slender Man. Instead of privileging the choices of certain creators as canonical, this collaborative culture informally locates ownership of the creature across the community. In these respects, the Slenderman is like campfire stories or urban legends, and the character's success comes from enabling both social interaction and personal acts of creative expression. Although nearly all users understand that the Slenderman is not real, they suspend that disbelief in order to become more engrossed when telling or listening to stories. This adds a sense of authenticity to Slenderman legend performances and blurs the lines between legend and reality, keeping the creature as an object of legend dialectic. This ambiguity has led to some confusion over the character's origin and purpose. Only five months after his creation, George Nury's Coast to Coast AM, a radio call-in show devoted to the paranormal and conspiracy theories, which I'm sure everybody who would be listening to this is familiar with, began receiving callers asking about the Slender Man. Two years later, an article in the Minneapolis Star Tribune described his origins as difficult to pinpoint. Eric Knudsen has commented that many people, despite understanding that the Slender Man was created on the Something Awful forums, still entertain the possibility that he might be real. Shira Chess describes the Slender Man as a metaphor for helplessness, power differentials, and anonymous forces. Peck sees parallels between the Slender Man and common anxieties about the digital age, such as feelings of constant connectedness and unknown third-party observation. Similarly, Ty Van Horn, a writer for The Elm, has suggested that the Slender Man represents modern fear of the unknown. In an age flooded with information, people have become so unaccustomed to ignorance that they now fear what they cannot understand. Troy Wagner, the creator of Marble Hornets, ascribes the terror of the Slenderman to its malleability. People can shape it into whatever frightens them most. Tina Marie Boyer noted that the Slenderman is a prohibitive monster, but the cultural boundaries he guards are not clear. Victims do not know when they have violated or crossed them. And we will talk about the Waukesha stabbing after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers.
0: So, this is a really really sad story about how something that is not real, becoming real to people can be very dangerous. We'll just leave it at that. On May 31st, 2014, two 12-year-old girls in Waukesha, Wisconsin held down and stabbed a 12-year-old classmate 19 times. When questioned later by authorities, they reportedly claimed that they wished to commit a murder as a first step to becoming proxies for the Slenderman, having read about it online. They also stated that they were afraid that the Slenderman would kill their families if they did not commit the murder. After the perpetrators left the scene, the victim crawled out of the woods to a roadway. A passing cyclist alerted authorities and the victim survived the attack. Both attackers have been diagnosed with mental illnesses, but were also charged as adults. One of the girls reportedly said Slender Man watches her, can read minds, and could teleport. Experts testified in court that she also said she conversed with Lord Voldemort and one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And while that may seem silly, it's pretty scary. It's not, not funny, because obviously... If she believed that Slenderman was real, then she would probably also believe that Voldemort and whoever Master Splinter or something was real too. On August 1st, 2014, one of the girls was found incompetent to stand trial and her prosecution was suspended until her condition improved. On November 12th, 2014, a doctor judged that her condition had improved enough for her to stand trial, and on December 19th, 2014, the judge ruled that both girls were competent to stand trial. In August 2015, the presiding judge ruled that the girls would be tried as adults. They were tried separately. On August 21, 2017, one of the girls pleaded guilty to being a party to attempted second-degree homicide, but claimed she was not responsible for her actions on grounds of insanity. In my opinion, if you drag somebody or trick somebody into coming into the woods with you. Not only is it premeditated, but you're trying to hide your action by it being in a you know a deserted place. In my opinion, someone who is legally insane is not someone who would hide their actions because they wouldn't know that it was wrong or would think for whatever reason that it's right. Although prosecutors allege that she knew what she was doing wrong, the jury determined that she was mentally ill during the attack. She will spend at least three years in a mental hospital. A Waukesha County Circuit Judge, Michael Boren, sentenced Weir, then 16 years old, which is one of the girls and we didn't mention their names, to be hospitalized for 25 years from the date of the crime, which would keep her institutionalized until age 37. In a statement to the media on June 4th, 2014, Eric Knudsen said, quote, I am deeply saddened by the tragedy in Wisconsin, and my heart goes out to the families of those affected by this terrible act. He stated he would not be giving interviews on the matter, and I don't blame him. He has, this is not his fault. You know what I mean? Like, it's not something that I think any blame should be placed on the creator of Slender Man. On September 25, 2017, it was reported that one of the girls, Morgan Geyser, then 15, had agreed to plead guilty to attempting to commit first-degree homicide in an arrangement that would allow her to avoid jail time. Wow. On February 1, 2018, the Associated Press reported that Geyser had been sentenced to 40 years in the Wisconsin Mental Hospital. The maximum sentence allowed. And moving on to Moral Panic. Tell us about that.
1: The stabbing in Waukesha spawned a nationwide moral panic over Slenderman across the United States. Parents across the nation became worried about the potential dangers that stories about Slender Man might pose to their children's safety. Russell Jack, the police chief of Waukesha, warned that the Slender Man stabbing should be a wake-up call for all parents. That the internet is full of dark and wicked things a warning which numerous media outlets publicized. After hearing the story, an unidentified woman from Cincinnati, Ohio, told a WLWT TV reporter in June of 2014 that her 13-year-old daughter had attacked her with a knife and had written macabre fiction, some involving the Slenderman who the mother said motivated the attack. On September 4, 2014, a 14-year-old girl in Port Ritchie, Florida, allegedly set her family's house on fire while her mother and 9-year-old brother were inside. Police reported that the teenager had been reading online stories about Slenderman as well as Atsushi Okubo's manga Soul Eater. I'm sure I got that wrong because there's an accent mark there. I don't know what to do with uh, Eddie Daniels of the Pasco County Sheriff's Office said the girl had visited the website that contains a lot of the Slenderman information and stories. It would be safe to say there's a connection to that. During an early 2015 epidemic of suicide attempts by young people ages 12 to 24 on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, Slenderman was cited as an influence. The Oglala Sioux Tribe president noted that many Native Americans traditionally believe in a suicide spirit similar to the Slenderman. Other Sioux described the big man as a messenger or sign warning that society is developing in a dangerous direction. A documentary film on the incident called "Beware the Slenderman," directed by Irene Taylor Brodsky, was released by HBO Films in March of 2016 and was broadcast on HBO on January 23rd, 2017.
0: And I just want to go back and point out that a I don't think Nudsen like became rich off Slenderman. I, I don't think it's something where he's like reclining on the beach in L.A. You know, like just living his best life. I mean, you can't. Blame, it seems like there's a lot of blame being placed on this thing like you know exactly what a moral panic would be and it'd be no different than blaming Stephen King for John Wayne Gacy because he was an evil clown and watched the movie It you know it's it's not his fault I'm just saying that it's it's not his fault but let's talk about what happened after the stabbing The Wakesha stabbing and the negative media attention it generated irreversibly altered the Slenderman legend and the online community surrounding it. What had previously just been a creepy horror meme to most people suddenly acquired a new level of reality that most fans of Slenderman found horrifying. Meanwhile, by around the same time, the Slenderman character had lost much of its original popularity. Most of the original blogs that had once been devoted to Slenderman either shut down completely or became less popular. Slenderman's presence in mainstream pop culture also contributed to a decline in how frightening he seemed to many people. The late 2010s also saw an increase in benevolent portrayals of Slenderman, with many depictions of him from this period portraying him as an anti-hero who protects victimized children from bullies, although often by violent means. In some portrayals of Slender Man from the late 2010s, he has a daughter named Skinny Sally who is portrayed as a young girl covered in cuts and bruises. That's gross. Slender Man sometimes is portrayed carrying Skinny Sally on his shoulders protectively. Lynn McNeil, assistant professor of folklore at Utah State University, observes that the increase in benevolent portrayals of Slender Man seems to have begun shortly after the stabbing in Wakesha, and states that this trend towards a benevolent Slender Man may be a reaction by fans of the character to the violent stabbing. Tell us about the folkloric qualities?
1: Sure. Several scholars have argued that despite being a fictional work with an identifiable origin point, the Slender Man represents a form of digital folklore. Shira Chess argues that the Slenderman exemplifies the similarities between traditional folklore and the open-source ethos of the internet, and that unlike those of traditional monsters such as vampires and werewolves, the fact that the Slenderman's mythos can be tracked and signposted offers a powerful insight into how myth and folklore form. Chess identifies three aspects of the Slenderman mythos that tie it to folklore. Collectivity, meaning that it is created by a collective rather than a single individual, Variability, meaning that the story changes depending on the teller and performance, meaning that the storyteller's narrative changes to reflect the audience's response.
0: It's great folklore. And when you have something that's not real, that causes violent crimes, then where does the blame lie? I mean, yeah. can't be, you can't just blame Slender Man. Because if you could, people would just kill people and be like, oh, Slender Man told me to do it. I I guess people are just need someone to blame besides the people that are to Mm. blame. And when it's your kids, you feel responsibility no matter what they do, even if they, you know, even if you taught them better and they know they're not supposed to do it, you still feel that guilt. And yeah, I think they're pushing it onto something that it doesn't where it doesn't belong put it that way
1: so i'm thinking about the whole show and i'm thinking about the uh the golem episode you were talking about of batman Mm -hmm. i don't know if there was one from the like original animated series from 93 Mm -hmm. but the what 1999 batman beyond series i remember there was a Gollum episode i don't remember if that was what it was called probably was yeah but i remember it was a there was a robot, like a construction robot called a golem mm-hmm. or golem or whatever. <laughs> I, th- I feel like I'm switching back and forth with my pronunciation, but basically it's controlled like mentally, mm-hmm. almost like you wear like it, it operates like an AI. E- well, it operates uh, like it, it, if I'm remembering the show right, it's a kind of like a combination of it, kind of like mimics what you're doing with your body, mm-hmm. but also kind of goes with your thoughts. Like a lot of the technology in that show was that way Because they were very optimistic about what the future Was going to look yeah. like <laughs> um, And this kid is getting Bullied by Nelson Who's like the main bully You know that Terry's dealing with As the Batman I'm a, I am like Batman Beyond a Lot Me too And if I'm remembering it right What happens is He uses it uh, The kid uses it To smash Nelson's car because mm-hmm. his dad's telling him, like, you know, you got to stand you up. You know, you got to hit him where it hurts. Yeah. If you got to stand up for yourself, you got to hit him where it hurts. So he uses the golem to smash his car. And Batman does something that causes, like, that link between the controlling headset and the robot to be broken, but it, like, zaps the kid. Mm-hmm. And it creates this unintentional
0: fusion th-
1: link where he is like permanently linked to the robot and the robot is like doing what he wants it to do mm-hmm. no matter what like it's unintentional <clears throat> or partially unintentional you know like it's just doing its thing now because the th- he's essentially putting a thought out there for it to do it mm-hmm. and that that is very much like what a tulpa is or what a go- you know what the dangers of a golem could be that you're putting out this thought that unintentionally grows beyond what you initially wanted it to be yeah, and kim was texting me while we were talking about all this you know saying like make sure because she she can hear me mm. she's saying like make sure that you hit the idea that you know the slender man being a folkloric thing in the digital age means there are a lot of people focusing on it and a lot of people thinking about it and putting out intention Mm -hmm. and that some of the stuff we're saying might just be sort of mass psychosis might in some experiences be more than that because we're putting out this unintended thought form through the internet maybe it i mean it very well could be i'm not sure if we hit that uh kind of connective tissue between those two parts that well but Yeah, I mean, it definitely could be.
0: If you are ever attacked by a golem and they're made of earth, just get a fire hose and spray them. Then you get a goat. Then you get a goat. Yep. All right. Well, that's all I've got on it. Um, We hope you enjoyed the show. And Ryan, tell them what they need to know.
1: Please. Please. Like, subscribe, share us with your friends and family, share us with people you think might like this, help us grow, tell us what we could be doing better, tell us how to pronounce things right, record it on your phone and send it to us. If you're noticing things that we are consistently (laughs) pronouncing wrong, or if you just like that as part of the show, then I guess we can leave it alone. But you can contact us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com You can follow us on TikTok at cryptic underscore podcast, YouTube, cryptic podcast, and as always, Check out the Parabox link in the show notes and check out their cool designs. I doubt that they'll have a mythical Bernie just yet, but maybe that'll be coming. Mm. And check out cryptiquepodcaststore.com. And
0: we'll talk about the rake in the after party on Thursday. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.